Professor Baker, you've been associated with the law faculty at Cambridge for close on 45 years, and before that, you were at UCL for nine. Of the 24 eminent scholars I've already had the privilege of interviewing, you're the fourth legal historian. One of the hallmarks of your work has been the wide range of topics of medieval to modern law into which you have delved, some of which at first seem arcane in the extreme. Little seems to have escaped your forensic investigation and your erudite pen, and hopefully you will enlighten us as to what drove you to be so comprehensive in the course of your prodigious scholarly output. However, before we come to these matters, could we in the first instance talk about and establish the general outlines of your career? In the first few interviews, therefore, perhaps you'll be able to provide some reminiscences and impressions of the two famous institutes in which you spent your academic life, as well as the eminent personalities therein. So could we start with your early life? You were born, Professor Baker, in Sheffield in 1944. Yes, that's right. Um, that was during the war. My mother came from Sheffield. Her father was a hairdresser and they had a respectable house in, in Sheffield. My father came from Essex and they met at Western Supermare when my mother was on holiday and my father was serving in the army <clears throat> and they married in 1943 and, and I, by the time I was born my father was off in Egypt and I didn't see him until I was two uh, and so um, early years were spent living in mother's house where I was born and then we moved south when my father came back after the war and mm -hmm. came down to Essex which was his territory. And um, at that point, that would have been about 1949, when you moved down. It was a bit before that, a bit I think. Before that. Mm. So, uh, before you actually moved, do you have any memories of Sheffield at that time? Well, I think I left when I was two, so I don't have very distinct memories. I have trivial memories about the house, of course, which seemed enormous then. I don't suppose it was. Yes. Um, but nothing very specific, no. Well, you attended the Trinity Road Primary School in Chelmsford from 1949 to 55, and I wondered whether you had any recollections of this time. Perhaps I could add, in answer to your previous question, a story that my mother told me. Of course, the, the big Sheffield Blitz was over before I was born and had destroyed the place where she used to work completely. But she tells a story that we had an air raid shelter at the bottom of the garden, and one night when the sirens went, um, because of the doodle bugs. Um, she said, oh, we'll go down under the stairs instead of going down to the shelter. Uh, and that night the shelter got a direct hit and was destroyed. So I always thought that was a very lucky chance yes. that we just escaped that. Yes. Of course, I remember nothing of it at all. Extraordinary, yes. Speaking of your mother, it reminds me that I'm, I should perhaps have asked you whether any of your parents had any legal or historical background. No, not at all. I think my parents, if they'd lived today, would have gone to university and would have done quite well, but that wasn't open to them in those days. So my mother left school, having done quite well, uh, and went to work in a rather grand store in Sheffield. My father had to leave school at 14. He'd been brought up in really quite poor surroundings in an 18th century cottage at Pleshy near Chelmsford. 
which hadn't really been altered since the 18th century. There was no running water, no electricity, no gas. And um, he left a village school at 14 with virtually no education. And um, I think he went into cars. He, he, he mended cars until the war came out. And then he, he did quite well in the war, became warrant officer class one. And then when he came back, went into the police force and uh, had really quite a stellar career and ended up as assistant chief constable. So there was a, a sort of legal connection there, but I don't yes. think that's why I took to the law. So that would perhaps we could come now to the time when you first attended the Trinity Road Primary School. Um, did you have any recollections of that? This is 1949. I owe a great deal to Trinity Road Primary School, which was a, a very simple school for relatively poor local children. But we were given a very good preparation for grammar school. They, they encouraged us to study. There was no pressure. I don't remember doing homework, but we were, by the time we left, we were doing maths at least to the level of the second form in the grammar school. And uh, three boys in my class went to Cambridge, not counting me, because I didn't to begin with. <clears throat> One of them became a research fellow, and uh, I became a professor. That's not a bad haul for a little no. school with people from very humble backgrounds. Indeed. So I, I owe a lot to them. But my only specific memories from that time are not really related to the school at all. I, my first memory ever of an event is the Festival of Britain in 1951, which my parents took me to, and I found it utterly exhausting. And then the next year, I vividly remember being in the cloakroom at school on a wet day, picking up my gabardine uh, overcoat, and somebody said, the king's dead. And I thought, well, that's very strange. Kings don't die, do they? <laughs> and sure enough, he had. And then the next year, we had the coronation. And I think that had a profound effect on me, as it did on many people at the time. We got this flickering black-and-white television set, as everyone did that year, and were able to watch this spectacular event in London with a really stirring, moving commentary by Richard Dimbleby. And there was an exhibition in Chelmsford of heraldry in Essex at this time. And I was absolutely fascinated by these manuscripts and seals and paintings of coats of arms and so forth. And I really traced my interest in history to that moment. I think that's what started it. That's a very antiquarian sort of interest. Yes. You call material culture now, I suppose, not, not really history. But that's when my fascination with the past began. At such an early age. Mm -hmm. That is very interesting. And um, you were able to pursue it quite systematically um, throughout your... Well, it, by the time I was at grammar school, I was cycling around Essex, looking at churches and making notes of monuments and so forth. And so I always had that... Yes. Yes, interest. I find mm. that very interesting, yeah. Um, so, uh, Professor Baker, you attended in 1955 the King Edward VI Grammar School of Chelmsford, and fittingly it was founded in 1551, which is the period around which much of your legal research has focused and I wondered whether perhaps the sort of ambience and the atmosphere at the school and the connections were a further spur to your interest. Well, I, I'm not sure about that. It was a it was a Victorian building, but arranged rather like a 
Tudor College with quadrangles and so forth. It definitely had an academic atmosphere, which was, uh, I'm sure, had an effect on all of us. Not sure that the history came from that. As I say, I already had an interest in history, but I felt very privileged to go to such an institution where yes. we were taught well. Yes. Yes. Mr. Baker, to continue still on the subject of your education, your secondary education at Cakes, um, it's a very famous state school and it had a well-developed house system. And I wondered whether, first of all, which, to which house you belonged and whether this sense of a sort of fellowship in some way um, was in any way sort of similar to the Oxbridge um, fellowship. Well, I was in Strutt House, which was named after an antiquary, I suppose, appropriately enough. I probably should have been in Tyndall House, which was named after a famous Chief Justice in the... 19th century, but not being a sportsman, it didn't really have a great deal of significance for me. It was mostly for sporting competitions. I, I only once took part uh, in a cross-country run because my house was one short and I'm going to be disqualified, and they said to me, we really need you to take part. So I did my duty and ran. By the time I got to the finishing line, everyone had gone, <laughs> but I saved the house. <laughs> no, it didn't mean very much. Um, I wondered what your favourite academic subjects were at that point. Well, I have to confess that I was never very turned on by school subjects. All my real interests were outside school. I always found it more interesting to find things out for myself than to be taught for exams. And um, I didn't like the way history was taught uh, for O-level we did because subjects didn't interest me. We had to think, study things like Metternich or the Conquistadors, which, which I might find interesting now. But at that age, I wanted to know about English history, and we didn't seem to do that at all. And since I was equally good at sciences, they decided at an early age it would be the science side that I should go on, and so I started specialising in science without any tremendous enthusiasm. I quite like maths, but. Um, the careers people told me I ought to be a research chemist. I think that was the line they'd set out for me. But I can't say that I was actually enthused by anything that I did at school. I mean, looking back on it, obviously the things that were most useful to me were things that I didn't realise at the time were going to be any use at all, like Latin, right. which we all had to do in those days because it was a requirement for Oxbridge entrance. And um, I didn't know why I was doing it, I didn't like it very much, I didn't like languages, but that was probably the most useful thing I learned. And the other remarkable stroke of luck I had was, because I was in the science sixth form, we had to do something cultural. And one of the options was to go down to the local record office and, and do something. And I was set the task of editing some 14th century manorial rolls. And so I was taught paleography by one of the archivists who'd actually written a guide to paleography, so I had the right person teaching me. And later on, when I turned to look at legal manuscripts, it never occurred to me that I was reading funny handwriting, because I'd already done that at school. And I'd never have had that if I'd been reading history at school. So again, that was an extremely useful uh, piece of learning. Yes. Extraordinary. It's a, by chance that it's propelled you on this path. Yes. And it fitted in with my private interests in local history. But it never really occurred to me that the interesting part of history could be something you would do 
um, for an exam or for a career. It's just something interesting. Yes. And uh, the, the village Pleshy, where my grandparents lived, had a wonderful Mott and Bailey castle remains of, which was completely overgrown uh, with trees in those days, and a wonderful smell of leaf mould when you went into it. And I used to go and sit there sometimes and imagine what it would have been like. And at the age of about 13, I wrote a little history of Pleshy and uh, borrowed some 18th century books from the local library, which you could in those days, and took them home. And it wasn't a great work of scholarship, but it, it again shows that I had this leaning, which was in no way connected with what I was doing at school. Yes. It's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, did you have any special mentors or teachers whom you remember from those days? Well, I remember quite a few of the teachers because there were some real characters, but I wouldn't call them mentors because, as I say, I wasn't really doing subjects that yeah. enthused me. Yeah. No, I could enumerate all of them, as of course you can have memories from that age, but they were, I wouldn't say they were a significant influence. The headmaster was a very significant character who I think was responsible for the school being what it is. Uh, Mr. Fanshawe, who died very recently, aged 102. And I owe a lot to him for well, what he did to the school and for helping me, despite not being terribly academic at school. I noticed, Professor Baker, that you're listed as a notable pupil from 1900 to 1960 on the Wikipedia site. And I wondered whether you'd seen that entry and whether you have any contacts with the school. Well, that's very kind of them. They must be short of <laughs> candidates. <laughs> um, I haven't had a great many contacts. No, they they made me a vice president of a 450-year appeal recently, and um, and also I went back for centenary of the Corps of Drums, which meant a lot to me when I was at school as a drum major. And I went back and gave the speech at the anniversary dinner, having been in the Corps of Drums halfway through that hundred years, a fact which I found rather alarming when I realised it. Uh, I think that brings us to the start of your tertiary education, which was at UCL, beginning in 1962 as an undergraduate. And I wondered what made you choose UCL rather than Oxbridge. Well, I, I applied to Cambridge, but I didn't get in, um, quite rightly. I, I applied to read sciences, originally, and I did entrance exam in natural sciences. And then... At the very last minute, I went to Mr. Fanshawe and I said, I'm sorry, sir, but I don't actually want to read science at university. And he was a bit shocked. He said, well, what do you want to read, Baker? And I said, I, I think archaeology, sir. And he said, you can't, Baker, you haven't read Greek. <laughs> so after a bit of discussion, it turned out that the only subject I could do at that point was law because you didn't need to know anything to read law. So. So we started looking around at places, and so I changed my Cambridge application to law, but I did an absolutely terrible interview, and they were quite right to turn me down. I had two offers. One of them was from UCL, and, and that seemed a very good place to go, so I was only too pleased to accept it. And uh, <clears throat> do you recall any particular mentors at UCL while you were an undergraduate? Well, I wouldn't say there were any mentors at UCL, the mentor, if any, that I had was Toby Milson at the LSE because we still had the very last remnants of intercollegiate teaching at London when I was there. 
we had to go down to King's College, for instance, to do evidence with uh, Professor Noakes. And legal history, we were sent down to the LSE to Milsom, and it was, I think, only his second year there, if I remember rightly. He'd just taken over from Plutnett. And that was the most fascinating course I'd done, of course. That tied in with all my interests. And um, I wondered how you'd... Um, because you mentioned him, and I was going to come to that later in the preface to your first book, and I wondered how you'd met him when he'd been at LSE from... Yes, I was one of his students there uh, I while I was at UC. Right. Mm. So any, I mean, he was, was he, was he a, obviously a very inspiring lecturer or teacher? Yes. Well, they were very small classes, and um, he had a completely different method of teaching than he had of writing. So never had lectures written out. It was just one or two notes scribbled on the back of an envelope or a card. And um, they were very chatty, and, and yet you learnt a lot. I can imagine. Without seeming to. He's yeah. a very brilliant man. With that wonderful sense of humour yes, as well. Indeed. Yes, indeed. Yes. Um, did you enjoy your London years, Professor Baker? Did you find living in London a exciting? Or? Well, I didn't like London as a place to live in very much, to be honest. Was it? In my first year, we were stuck out at Muswell Hill. Um, and UCL made us share rooms if we were living out that far so, so that we didn't uh, despair. <laughs> so, so I did share a room with somebody else, but it was a very long way away. I mean, it was quite a long bus journey to get to the nearest underground station. So, um, fortunately, I was able to move into Gordon Street during my first year, and so one was almost living in college. There were still some private houses there then. But... Yes, of course, it was exciting. I was away from home for the first time and training for a career. And, uh, but I wouldn't say that I really liked London terribly much. No. Um, you, you were actually awarded the Andrews Medal and Prize in 1965 during this time. And could you just tell us something about this award? I think that was just for the, what they deemed to be the best result in the final exam. I see. I, I wouldn't have got it in my second year, but since they'd offered me a teaching post, I thought I'd better pull my socks up and try and get a first, <laughs> so I did. <laughs> and then you stayed on after you graduated. You stayed from 65 to 71, and you spent six years as a lecturer, and then first of all assistant lecturer, and then a lecturer. And I wonder if you could just outline for us the circumstances of your deciding to stay at UCL? Well, it was decided for me. It was never my intention to be an academic. I never dreamed of it. I wasn't an academic type, I thought. Um, I was going to the bar in my mind. But the head of department, George Keaton, had a policy of grabbing people before they got into practice because he knew he wouldn't get them back afterwards. And so he summoned me one day and because he'd actually seen some of my private research work on the history of lawyers, which obviously thought um, looked as though I might become an academic. So he said, well, would you like a lectureship? I was taken aback. And he said, well, it needn't interfere with your going to the bar. It'll tide you over, give you a salary of £1,000 a year, which in those days was just enough to live on. <laughs> <laughs> with London waiting, it was £1,000. And so 
I wasn't really much choice. I said, yes, of course, and be delighted. And so I just carried on and was teaching the people I'd known here below me. <laughs> it was a rather strange experience, um, without a PhD or anything of that sort. That's the way it was then. No appointments committees, no application, no references. Because I remember um, other scholars who I've interviewed saying the same um, about appointments and how very different it was. It was. It, of course, one would say this having been on the successful end of it, but it, it actually worked <laughs> um, just as well as the present system, but I suppose there's a sense of unfairness for those who don't get appointed, and that's why we've gone over to the way we do it nowadays, but it, it did on the whole work. And uh, what, what subjects were you teaching at that point? Oh, I just did contract and taught, I think, on the English legal system, perhaps, which was a subject we used to teach in those days. And I was responsible for legal history, but I obviously carried on the practice of sending them down to the LSEs and Wilson. Except for one year, in 1968, he was away, and I took over his lectures at the LSE. And that was a year they were having trouble with the student revolutionaries and, and so on. And I remember that only half my class turned up one day, and as I was going back past the law courts, there was a newspaper placard saying, a student... Um, revolutionaries close law school rebel lecturer continues so <laughs> I would rather like to think that was me but I don't think it was <laughs> from that period were there, are there any memorable colleagues who stand out well those I knew best were Peter Burks who, who went on to Oxford I think he was probably closest to my interests we had adjoining rooms and we had a lot in common but he, he went off to Oxford while I was there, so it was only a short time. And Bill Butler, who was a Soviet law expert, which was quite a long way from my interest, but he, he shared my interest in old books and uh, pursuing historical puzzles. And so we had a lot in common spiritually, I think. And I got on, we used to go on book-buying expeditions to remote parts of the country. Very interesting. He's still quite active. Yes, indeed. Yes, very yes. active. Yes. Yes. Yes, he was quite a live wire, uh, even in those days. Professor Baker, you, at that stage you joined the Society uh, of Public Teachers at Law, and uh, um, this seems to imply that you took your teaching very seriously. Did, do you, did this, was this a, a way of providing support for teaching? No, I think everybody joined then, or encouraged to. It just seemed to be the right thing to do. And went to the conferences in those days. And I joined the, whatever it was, that got your name in the law list at the same time. So I was hedging my bets. And, and it was during this period that your first book on the introduction to legal history in 1971 um, came out. It was written while you were there, and so you obviously began your this interest that you've had since child in historical research um, seemed in a way to um, was obviously carried through with the publication of this book, and I think you've intimated that it was Toby Milson who was the inspiration for this. Yes, undoubtedly. But I, I would never have had the 
gall to write a textbook if I hadn't been asked by Butterworth to do it. That oh. was their idea. Right. And they said they just wanted a very simple elementary introduction. They didn't tell me that Milson was writing his book at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I now know that they'd asked Milson to, to revise Plucknet, which was the textbook we previously used, and he had said he'd rather write his own book, which they agreed to, and then it became a rather more sophisticated idea than what they'd had in mind, which was a fairly elementary book. And so they, they asked me if I could do the Idiot Guide, which, in the first edition, was only about 200 pages, I think, it cost two guineas, if I remember rightly, or maybe it was even less. So it was a very, very simple book, and it's grown bigger over time. Nevertheless, I mean, a, a formidable undertaking for such an early stage in your career. Uh, this book, which you know has grown and grown, and is now the the book, and uh, which is you know, it, you say it's an, it was an elementary book, but having glanced at it, and we will come to it later. Um, it's uh, certainly not. Uh, I, I, w I wouldn't call it elementary, and, and must have been quite an undertaking at that stage of your career. Well, it didn't seem so oddly enough. It didn't rest very much on original research because I hadn't done much then. The only insights in it were probably plagiarised unconsciously from Milsom. I just assumed that was the way legal history was. I probably didn't fully appreciate until Historical Foundations was published just how innovative Milsom was and what I'd learned from him. But I didn't mean to say anything new. I just thought I'd been a student myself not long ago and perhaps I'm well placed to explain the subject in simple terms to students. I've never written it later in my career, but I've been stuck with it and all I could do was try and make it slightly better as time went on. I'd probably have done it differently if I'd thought of it later. While you were at UCL, in addition to everything else, you also did your bar qualifications and I just wondered how you managed to fit that all in and whether you ever practiced it all. No, I intended to, and that, that was the whole point of reading law. thought I'd have a go at the bar. I knew it was very difficult. The chances are I wouldn't succeed, and then I'd become an archivist or something. But um, in order to be called to the bar in 1966, as I was, you had to start eating dinners in 1963. So I joined the Inner Temple a term after going to UCL. Uh, and then one had to do the bar exams, which in those days didn't require a course. You could take a course if you wanted to, but rather arrogantly I thought, well, I'm now a law lecturer, I should be able to teach myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I set aside a few weeks, and a lot of the subjects were the same as we'd just done. But we had to add on all sorts of things I hadn't done, like pleading, drafting, jactitation, petitions, and so forth. And um, I'd never done company law, so I took a week to teach myself company law. I never understood it since. <laughs> And I managed to scrape through the 2 2, which, is, uh, which I was quite pleased with after a month's work. And it was regarded as a pass exam, so it didn't really matter. Uh, and that was it. I never actually even got as far as doing pupillage, which I intended to do. But George Keaton also said to me that I ought to do a PhD in my spare time, um, based on this uh, research I'd been doing privately on sergeants at law. He said, well, you just improve it a bit and we'll put it in for a PhD. I'll supervise you, he said. 
well, supervisions amounted, I think, to a couple of conversations in the loo when you said, <laughs> how's our work going? <laughs> that was it. So it wasn't a very good PhD, but I did teach myself quite a lot of what one needs to know about uh, doing research, manuscript materials and so forth. So it was useful to me, but it wasn't publishable. Yes. But uh, I mention it because that distracted me from doing the pupillage, which I would otherwise have done. understand. Um, did you, in this time, have any overseas visits at all? No. And according to your CV, you produced in this time your book, your legal history, as well as 12 articles, um, bearing in mind you had teaching duties and the bar exams. Um, it's an impressive achievement, which leads one to conclude that even at that early stage, Professor Baker, you, you must have been extremely well organised. Well, I don't think I've ever been very organised, but I was enthusiastic about legal history. And looking back, it's obvious that I was always going to become an academic, but I think for those London years, until I took the decision to come to Cambridge, I still thought that I was someday going to be a barrister. And I remember even in my first passport, where it said profession, I put barrister. Yes, um, and my father-in-law, who was a clergyman, said, that's absolutely right, if I ask for my profession, it's clerk in holy orders, it's, it's occupation, it's vicar of wherever. So I thought, yes, profession, barrister, occupation, lecturer in law. <laughs> um, but of course I was spending all my time doing historical research, and we were very lucky at UCL being only five minutes away from the British, Li British Museum, which was where the library then was. And so I could go down and look at manuscripts which I started doing as an undergraduate, actually. Gave me a ticket even then. Gosh. And so I was enthused by an article that Brian Simpson wrote about Spellman's reports, which he'd discovered. So I went off and looked at the manuscript myself, and I thought, oh, that's very interesting. Perhaps I should edit that. And I ended up doing that later. And it was also in those years that I discovered Cook's notebooks, which was probably the most exciting discovery I ever made, actually. And I only just got round to editing them, that's what I'm doing at the moment. But that was done in, in those years at UCL. Um, any abiding memories of UCL and the law faculty before we moved to your time at Cambridge? I wondered whether you ever encountered the Bentham display. You, you mean the auto icon? Yes. Oh yes, that was... That was always... Oh, it's still there, isn't it? Um, why have they moved it? I think it's been... I'm not sure whether it's still wheeled out. Um, I... Well, it used to stand at the bottom of the... Sorry, I'll have to cut this because I can't remember the name no. of the um, wing. Um, yes, they, they, they used to wheel him into meetings of the Bentham Club. Yes. And the minutes would always say that Mr. Bentham was present but did not speak. <laughs> but, um, well, during my time there that we acquired a new building, which is now being rebuilt in Ensley Gardens. <clears throat> Before then, we'd had a very small, pokey little hut at the bottom of Foster Court, which was so small that they couldn't even give me a room in it. And in my first couple of years... I had to share an office over a pub in Tottenham Court Road called the Mortimer Arms with a young chap called Ian Kennedy. 
who became Sir Ian Kennedy, an expert on medical law. And we used to lecture all over the place. Most of my lectures were in the anatomy theatre with skeletons on display. And it was a very atmospheric theatre, which they used for the film Doctor in the House. But we didn't have our own law school with its own lecture rooms until we got this uh, Ensley Gardens building, which had belonged to a, a trade union and was adapted. And my principal memory of that building is that Peter Burks and I were once tipped off by one of our colleagues that they were throwing some books out of some chambers in Lincoln's Inn into a skip in Carey Street. And so we zoomed down to rescue them. There were lots of 18th century law reports and so forth old textbooks and brought them back in terrible condition and we set up our bindery in the basement and we had this glue boiling away and <laughs> got rolls of buckram and we did these awful bindings which <laughs> just about held the books together until our colleagues complained about the smell that was <laughs> percolating upstairs and we had to stop that. <clears throat> Do you still have those Books, Professor Baker. Uh, there may be one somewhere. <laughs> I think most of them got thrown away in the end. <clears throat> Which brings us then to uh, the beginning of your long association with Cambridge. You came to the Squire Law Library in 1979, where you stayed until 1973. And interestingly, this was not an academic post to which you came. And I wondered if you could recount the circumstances that prompted you to give up an academic post at UCL to come to Cambridge as the librarian? Yes, well, um, needless to say, I didn't apply for the post. <laughs> and most of my life was spelt, spent taking up posts I never applied for. But um, One day, Tony Thomas, the professor of Roman law at UCL, said to me, there's this vacancy at Cambridge, I think that would suit you. It's your sort of world. He said, why don't you apply? So I never thought of it myself. All right, I'll have a go. And when I came up, I was taken for a walk around Downing College by Clive Parry, who was on the committee, and I think was also chairman of the library committee at that time. And he said, I have to tell you that you're second on the shortlist, so you're not going to get it. Would you like to be librarian of the Squire Law Library? I was very taken aback, and I said, well, I don't have any librarianship qualifications. And he said, you read books, don't you? <laughs> And then he said it pays a lecturer salary, so you'll be paid more than what you've applied for. And you'll have a room in the library, so ideal for doing your research. It's not a full-time job, he said. You'll spend half your time doing your own research in the library. Don't, by any, um, don't accept a college fellowship because they'll only make you do lots of teaching, he said. <laughs> Just make the library your base. And so what I thought... That's worth trying for a bit. And so I agreed. And so you came up to Cambridge and you... I didn't, didn't accept the advice about the college, though. I was saying that was my next question. No, well, another member of the yeah. committee was um, Dick Goodison of St Catherine's, who was looking for someone to help him at St Catherine's. He'd been the first law fellow there and um, was at one time taught all the subjects in the tripod himself, I think, and quite reasonably felt he'd like to have a second law fellow. And so here was an opportunity to pick one up and cost the college anything. And so they had to change the regulations by grace so that I was allowed to teach because they'd altered them when Bill Major became librarian so that the librarian was not allowed to do any college teaching. 
And I think that's one of the reasons why he left. So they changed it so that I was allowed to do six hours college teaching, same as a reader. And that was just enough for St. Catherine's to agree to elect me as a fellow. <clears throat> that was in the days when the um, library was placed in, in, the, in the old schools. Yes. And still part of the faculty. Yes. Um, could you tell us something about the premises? I mean, did you have your own office at that point? Yes, I did. A beautiful building, of course. And it's been beautified even more by Keyes, who had more money to spend on it than the university had in those days. But it was a breathtakingly lovely building. One felt uplifted every time one set foot in it, I have to say. And I had a room on the first floor overlooking Senate House Passage. And quite still, I think it's the Keys Librarian's office now. So it was very nice. And I was quite often the last to leave. And I used to know my way out in the dark, feel my way along the statue of George I at the end, and then turn left. <laughs> Competition with Kurt Lipstein to be the last out, usually. He spent even more time in the library than I did, I think. <clears throat> and uh, your staff? Well, it was a very small staff in those days. There was Gordon Hughes, who was the assistant librarian and actually ran the show, really. And there was a very elderly um, assistant called Ted Hill, who'd been there since before the war, I think, and had never really come to terms with the new classification system. He once told me Rather dolefully, in the old days, all the books were arranged alphabetically, and then he knew where they were. <laughs> and, uh, he was better known as a Proctor's bulldog, I think. He was a very well-known bulldog, good at running, <laughs> catching people, but didn't know much about books. And then there were two young chaps, uh, Tony Rawlings and Peter Zavada. And, of course, Peter's only just retired. And that was it, really, I think. We did try to employ somebody else, I remember, who took us for a ride and didn't do any work and was absent very often, and I had to sack him. It was the first time I'd ever sacked anybody. Perhaps the only time I've ever sacked anybody in my life. Professor <laughs> <clears throat> um, Baker, did you attempt any sort of real organisation of the collections at all? No, well, they'd just been reclassified by Willie Steiner. I never quite understood why Willie hadn't been made librarian, but he'd gone off to the Institute of Advanced Legal Studies. But he developed, of course, this classification system of his own, and that had only really just come into being and was just being computerised when I was librarian. It was originally all on cards. And then we had one, I think it was probably the first computerised catalogue in Cambridge, if I'm not mistaken. It was experimental piece of work. So I certainly wasn't going to interfere with that. No. Uh, were the international collections separate? Not formally. I mean, they had... They occupied most of the upper floor. So they were physically distinct, as they are still, but they were part of the squire. Right. Um, so could you just briefly tell us what your duties were at this point as librarian? Well, I mean, they weren't meant to be full-time, and they weren't. So there was a general oversight, because uh, Gordon Hughes did the day-to-day -day running, and I didn't have to do cataloguing or anything of that sort. I did spend quite a lot of time on accessions. There were one or two fields where I got help from colleagues, but by and large it was left to me. 
so I used to spend quite a lot of time every month reading catalogues and deciding what I thought would go well in the squire. And since I love collecting and buying books, I found that quite an agreeable part of the role. Indeed. And to a large extent, I mean, it accounts for some, some of the wonderful collections that we have today. Um, very fortunate in having faculty managing the acquisitions. Hmm. Uh, you followed Mr. Major, who, whom you've mentioned, uh, who was recruited from London, um, but he went back in 1970. You've kindly told us why. Do you have any? Did you ever meet him or have any memories of him? No, I didn't meet him. No. no. Well, I might have met him once, but I, I don't remember him. Yeah. The, um, someone else who's prominent in the history of the library is T. E. Lewis. He had retired. I wondered if you have had had a sense of his legacy after 30 years, or whether you ever sought his advice. No, sorry, I, I, I think the truth is that the library was run by Willie Steiner, or all the assistants, and um, that Tell, as it was called, was a university lecturer whose work was mainly teaching as a regular member of the faculty, and so if there were odd problems in the library, he would sort them out, but I don't think it was a very hands-on position. It may surprise you to know that I only met Lewis once when he interviewed me for admission to Trinity Hall. <laughs> Rather ironic that I later took over his position, which I never told him, of course. No. <laughs> and he was quite right to turn me down, I may say I would have done the same. Yeah. Awful interview on my part. Interesting, though. Um... During your time, presumably, um, the acquisitions that was your, mainly your responsibility, Professor Baker, book acquisitions, because books were coming in at an average of about 2,200 volumes a year, which is quite a lot if you consider the time and the fact that they were, it was all print at that point. Is that monographs or does that include serials as well? Um, these are volumes, um, according to Steiner's History of the Library, and I think it refers to books um, rather than serials. Right. I think. But, um, because obviously the, of the total volumes coming in, well over half would be serials, which one had no decision to make about. Right. But still, we bought quite a lot, yes. Yes. Um, Mr. Hughes was the librarian from 79 to 82, and he was the last of the faculty employees, and I wondered if you had any memories of him. Well, yes, of course. He, he was my right-hand man, as it were, and um, yeah. ran the show, and went on running it after I stopped. But I, part of my reason for giving up the library was I just felt that maybe there ought to be someone who devoted a bit more time to it, perhaps spent money fundra time fundraising <clears throat> or whatever. Yes. And so I would step aside and do what I was really cut out to do and uh, let them get a proper librarian. But the faculty then decided, presumably, that I'd been so ineffective that they didn't need one at all. <laughs> and so we didn't have a librarian for quite a long time, except Gordon just went on doing what he'd always done and it did seem to run perfectly all right. I'm not sure that accessions um, were quite so straightforward then because there wasn't one person to decide on them. 
But um, yes, he, he was a very nice, effective man, smoked too much and died rather young. Yes. His son actually was a cataloguer in the UL for many years. Mm. Yes, indeed, I met him, yes. daughter-in-laws at Clare. Yes. Um, do you think, in retrospect, Professor Baker, that the takeover by the University Library in 1982 as ultimately was, was a good thing? Well, I haven't been close enough to the running of the library since then to make a judgment, really. It's been quite useful, I think, from the staff point of view in that you can move people back and forth. That was the main advantage in, in respect of the books. Of course, there's now more duplication because... But I don't quite know how that works now. I can't comment on that. But it's more complicated. The, the relationship with the books that we get. Uh, sorry, I'm talking about... No, no, no it, 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 it is actually, especially with the legal deposit. It's very, yes. it's become very complicated, yes. actually, and problematic. Um, Professor Baker... Can you, you can cut that bit out? I started talking complete gibberish. <laughs> Can I just ask you, um, are you are you comfortable because you're sort of having to twist? Would you, should, should, would you like to turn your chair around? No, I'm all right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just uh, quite... I was wondering about your relationship with the library committee and the committee chairman, because you were librarian with Clive Perry, who's always struck me as a very interesting, enigmatic figure. Yes. Uh, that was from 67 to 71. Well, Clive was certainly a character. As I say, he was responsible for pushing me into the librarianship. Were you friendly with him, Professor Baker? Uh, not, not particularly. He was quite an awkward customer. Because I remember when I next called on him in his rooms in Downing, he kept me standing there for some time and then turned to me and said, How's your Portuguese? <laughs> this is a bit off-putting. <laughs> and then... When I got here, I wrote him a letter, Dear Professor Parry, and he wrote back and said, Please don't address me as professor. It's what they call pianists in brothels. And I thought this was an extraordinary piece of esoteric information. But then I didn't know whether I was supposed to call him Parry or Clive. <laughs> I went for Parry, which was the usual thing in those days, and that was wrong too. <laughs> but he was certainly a character. And... Um, tended to get his own way with things. But his view was that the library committee was completely pointless, and I, I didn't actually remember it making yeah. major decisions or doing very much. Right. <clears throat> yeah, certainly there don't seem to be any records of meetings. Well, that would but fit, because I couldn't remember there being any. <laughs> <laughs> no, he thought everything should be sorted out on the hoof, as it were, and don't worry no. about meetings. No. <laughs> <laughs> um... Robbie Jennings was the chairman from 71 to 72, which would have overlapped with your time. That I don't remember. Whether we were meeting then or not, I yeah. don't recall, I'm afraid. Time. And uh, Kurt Epstein from 72. Well, again, I, I don't have any memories of the library committee. Of course, Kurt was yeah. enormously helpful with continental books. He used to manage that completely and tell the staff what the titles meant and yes. <laughs> decide what we ought to buy. Yes, marvellous. Yeah, that's entirely his doing. Yeah, incredible legacy for the library. Mm. Yes. In fact, when I first visited the Squire with Clive Parry, he said the one person you need to meet is Kurt Lifstein, and she, 
showed me into the room where Pert lived. And uh, he was a very important figure. Did the uh, Ewell professor have any development on, uh, any influence on the development of the international law collections to the best of your knowledge? I don't remember so. I remember choosing quite a lot of... I used to buy almost anything that looked like international law. Even though I knew nothing about international law, I thought I could judge what might be useful, and I used yeah. to order them myself. Right. Oh. Um, as you mentioned, you left after two years, um, but it had not been your intention originally to have a short stint. No, I thought I would give it a try and it might well work out as Clive had suggested. Yeah. And, and um, uh, I don't quite know. I just felt it was a slightly unreal position that I was in. I don't know why. Yeah. It's, it's far more common in the States to have academics as law librarians in charge. I think it was probably unique here. I was the only person in the country in that sort of position. And I just felt slightly awkward about it and thought I might move out. Also, I remember Glanville Williams coming to me with lists of complaints about the library and there were things I didn't feel that I could actually change very easily. <laughs> that got me down a bit. because I. Yeah. Um, and I remember Peter Stein coming to see me and saying, don't take any notice of Glanville Williams. We, we would like you to carry on as librarian, but if you don't want to, uh, also support your application to move. And so I applied for the next assistant lectureship. Uh, you, when you resigned, you were put on the Squire Law Library Staff Committee right, with uh, Mr Glazebrook and Professor Stein. And I wonder whether you had any recollections of that. None whatever, I'm afraid. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, while you were running the Squire Library, Professor Baker, you must presumably have had some lecturing and supervisory duties as well, being a fellow at St Cats. Yes, I was supervising in St Catherine's. Again, I was doing contract and taught and adding on constitutional law as well and English legal system and legal history. It turned out that legal history hadn't been supervised until I came because it was a sort of pact between the legal historians that they wouldn't do it. And then um, Dick Goodison asked me if I would supervise for St Catherine's and this rather put the cat among the pigeons and um, so I got asked to do it for other colleges and then they had to introduced supervisions in legal history. I didn't know I was being a blackleg and <laughs> breaking this agreement. But it was quite a lot of supervision because in those days in St Catharines we took in on the whole about 12 a year on average and we'd always get three or four, if not more, changing over to law from other subjects who all needed to be taught in the subjects I was teaching in core subjects. And so one had to have quite big classes sometimes and dozens and dozens of supervision reports to write so it's quite yes. burdensome yes. and one year when Dick Goodison went away on leave I found myself directing the studies of I think 12% of the whole college and it's unthinkable nowadays everyone's terribly specialised and yes. we've now got four or five law fellows in St Catharines but yes. um, it was a different world the number of students was pretty much the same but we managed with far fewer dons I mean, it sounds an incredibly busy time with your duties you've just outlined as well as your library job. Um, 
and I wondered whether there were any particular faculty members who stand out as having been helpful to you during this time in terms of advice and so on. Well, I knew, obviously worked mainly with the legal historians, David Yale and Michael Pritchard, and to a lesser extent Peter Stein, because he was a Roman lawyer, but so we knew each other quite well. But also very helpful to me was Jack Hampson, as editor of the Cambridge Law Journal, and he sort of published everything I wrote very generously. And um, was a great encouragement to me. I, I also, uh, Hampson was, as editor of the Cambridge Law Journal, got me to become secretary, so I was secretary and treasurer of the Cambridge Law Journal for quite a few years, sort of business manager. Very interesting. You found time to write four papers during this time, <coughs> including uh, one with an intriguing title, An Effigy of a Judge in a Graceford Church. <coughs> and um, I wondered what the circumstances were of such a piece. Uh, well, I'd always had this antiquarian interest in church monuments and history of the legal profession, but uh, my then wife came from Wrexham. Her father was a clergyman up there, and Gresford is a church that we visited once, I think, for an induction. And I saw this heap of stones by the door, and I said, well, bits of that look rather like a judge, and we rearranged them because it had been broken up. And sure enough, it was um, effigy of a judge. And I did a bit of work to find out who I thought it was, and thought maybe the local antiquary society might like to have an article. Just a simple piece. Yes. Well, it's very interesting. I thought I'd just ask you about it because it was it would obviously slip through the cracks when we talk <laughs> about your... You know, well, I've, I've written quite a few of these little antiquarian pieces from time to time, even recently something on heraldry, so it's just yes. a sideline. Yes. <clears throat> Professor Baker, in 1972, while at the Squire Library, you paid a visit to Harvard, and I wonder if you could tell us about that. Well, this ultimately goes back to my friendship with Bill Butler, who had got friendly with a microfiche company called IDC, which had filmed a lot of his Soviet material. And he said, why don't you do a, a legal history project? And so I said, that sounds like a good idea, particularly with material at Harvard, which I can't get to see normally. I never been to the States. And so IDC said, splendid idea, we'll fly you over and you can catalogue it all. Because there was no catalogue of it either, so it was a way of finding out what there was. And so I went over to the Harvard Law School to do that. Spent a week there and uh, fascinating. And then subsequently we filmed manuscripts in Lincoln's Inn and Gray's Inn and the Bodleian Library and Cambridge University Library. My goal was to do the British Library, but uh, so anti-diluvian there, we could never get agreement on how to do it. Or anything else. <laughs> Professor Baker, at that point, this is 1973, you became a lecturer at Cambridge. Um, you were 29 at the beginning of this position, and you applied for the post. Is there is there any other information you can... Tell us about the, how you obtained this position. 
Well, there was the usual appointments committee, which was pretty terrifying. It was chaired, as I recall, by Arthur Armitage, president of Queen's College, who went on to become vice-chancellor of Liverpool, I think. And it had a number of luminaries on it, such as Glanville Williams, who read my oeuvre to that date and was able to cross-examine me on lots <laughs> of minutiae, <laughs> which I found quite frightening. But, but anyway, they appointed me, so all went well. <clears throat> and this was in the old schools. Uh, did you lecture in the old schools? or Yes. The legal history lectures were all in what we used to call Room 4, which was the medieval school of canon law, which divides the two courts of the old schools, the one that runs across the middle. It was just big enough for the sort of numbers who did legal history. And the acoustics were wonderful in there because it had been built by medieval architects as a lecture room, so you didn't need to raise your voice, really, except that they usually scheduled them for five o'clock. And I remember Michael Pritchard telling me it was the same when Milsom started in 1948, and you had to contend with the bell from King's 5.20 to 5.30. That <laughs> was really quite <laughs> disturbing in the middle of a lecture. <clears throat> and then the contract lectures, the other subject I used to give was contract, was um, I think always in the East Room, which is above the arcade of the old schools. It's now been cut up and turned into offices, scandalously, because it's one of the most beautiful rooms in the university, with a very fine plasterwork roof. And that was quite hard to lecture in because it had been designed by 18th century architects as part of the university library. So it was designed to lose sound and it did it very effectively. <laughs> so you had to shout in there. Interesting. And then down below there we had a little room that we used for morning coffee where I think other people who've interviewed have said this that and that was a focal point of the faculty then because everybody met at 11 usually in gowns because they'd just been lecturing or going off to lecture and would have a chat about affairs, which I suppose happens to some extent in the new building, but I don't think it's quite as intimate as it was then. And the, next to that little room there was another little room which was the faculty office. And, and that was it, with one secretary, Miss Suckling, and she was secretary to the chairman of the faculty, the chairman of the degree committee, and the secretary of the faculty. And had all the faculty files in her office. <laughs> it's all done from there. <clears throat> During that time, I became secretary of the faculty. I think it was in 75 when Peter Stein was chairman. The faculty administration was a very different affair from nowadays. There was what I like to call a steady-state university, so it didn't require as much effort to keep it running. And it's a very good question whether we've gained much by changing everything every year, because it requires a lot of energy, keeping ahead of fluctuating rules and policies. On my desk when I took over, there was a file which had been written by John Thornley on how to be secretary of the faculty, written around 1948. There were one or two stickers in it saying that this and that had been changed by such and such a regulation, but essentially it was the same faculty that it had been 30 years earlier, uh, and you just kept it ticking over. And obviously there's a lot of work to do arranging lecture timetables and exams, and the exam results all had to be added up by hand in those days, 
But it was routine work, and, and I didn't have any of the things that trouble secretaries and chairmen these days. One important change we did bring about, though, the, the course for the LLB, as it then was, lasted for one year, but the degree required two years of residence. And that's because there was an accepted piece of academic theology that you couldn't take any Cambridge degree unless you'd spent two years here. And the result was that Cambridge BAs could take the LLB as soon as they passed the exam, but graduates from other universities had to pursue an approved course of study for another year. And we usually gave permission for them to read for the bar or begin their articles, but they still had to remain resident, and that was a nuisance, which deterred many postgraduate students from coming here. But they just invented the MPhil, and Peter Stein immediately spotted that it only required one year of residence. So we submitted a petition to the university asking for the LLB to be put on the same footing. And I much enjoyed writing the report, which I began by underlying our patience in that we'd forborne to seek any change in the residence requirements since it was first laid down in the 1680s. Uh, and it worked, uh, and the ultimate result was to transform the LLM as it now is, since it now attracts students from all over the world. There were some prominent uh, academics in the faculty at the time, senior academics, we're talking from 71 to 73, um, Professors Glanville Williams, uh, and I wonder... Professor Lipstein, Perry, Hampsonstein, and Jennings, and I wondered whether you have specific memories of them, Professor Baker. Well, I'm not sure I can conjure up anything specific. Of course, I knew them all. Yeah. I found Glanville rather frightening, because <laughs> <laughs> he seemed to know everything. I, I once plucked up courage and invited them to a feast in college, and I've always felt embarrassed by the recollection ever since, because I didn't suitably intellectual conversation with him. <laughs> so I rather regret that. Um, but no, I, I, I mentioned the, the others who were helpful to me. And uh, Robbie Jennings I knew a bit better later on, but not very well in those days. Most of my conversations were with legal historians, I suppose. I was a bit specialist. Yes. Lecturers who were around at the time would have included Tony Jolivitz. Well, of course, I, I knew all the lecturers, but I wouldn't say I was close to them. Oh. Um, Professor Gareth Jones. Yes, I, I didn't know him tremendously well. No. Um, the subjects that you taught, I think you've mentioned, were taught and contract, and... Yeah. Yes, I think for the faculty, I only taught contract and legal history. But in college, I was doing taught contract, constitutional, and this horrible English legal system subject, which was abolished. You had agonising supervisions about legal aid and things like that, which were essentially, essentially factual. <laughs> so everyone hated it, both teachers and taught. And, um, but we actually, it was necessary, and um, it was a way of learning what the difference was between the Court of Appeal and the High Court and who could do what. And I'm not sure that they necessarily pick that up now. They're supposed to have some induction, I think, in the first year. In fact, we've improved that recently, but for a long time there was nothing to replace English legal systems. Mm. The trouble is if you don't examine 
a subject as we did then, and people don't take it very seriously. Yeah. And we hope that they'll pick up this very vital information which yes. uh, you need to know. Yes. About precedent and statutes and so forth. In 1975, you were awarded the York Prize. Can you tell us about that? Well, I suppose that flowed from my looking at Spellman's reports in the British Library back when I was an undergraduate, after reading the article by Brian Simpson. It was actually just a little note in the Law Quarterly Review. And I thought, these need editing. So I got a copy of them and transcribed them and uh, got very interested in the subject. And nobody had written on the law in Henry VIII's reign, and so I thought I would look into it as far as I could and start looking at plea rolls and see what I could discover from them. And I wrote this little essay on the law in Henry VIII's reign. That's really what it is. And then I don't quite know what prompted me to put it in, whether someone advised me, or I just thought it'd be nice to have £400, which I think is what it was then. And so I put it into the prize. But it also became the introduction to the edition Spellman's reports, with a bit of tweaking. Interesting. Uh, you became a junior proctor in 1980. What did this entail, Professor Baker? Well, I think uh, pretty much what it always has. There was a responsibility for student discipline, and we still have an occasional sit-in when I was a proctor. That's almost a thing of the past, although we have had some recently. And you're also, historically, you're a representative of the MAs of the university in the Regent House, and so there were various administrative duties and ceremonial duties. I found it absolutely fascinating because of my historical interests, and um, collected lots of historical material, which I put in a box and... Uh, don't know what to do with. For instance, uh, when I was sworn in, they were handed over to me, or to my bulldogs, a couple of objects, a pole axe and a, a sort of metal tube with a hinge on it, known as the butter measure. Well, how you would measure butter with it is beyond anyone's understanding. And these stood in my cupboard in St. Catherine's during my year in office, and they came out on ceremonial occasions and carried behind me. <laughs> Constables, and I thought, well, I'm a historian, I'll work out what these were. And I went to the university library and I found that there were documents called Traditar listing all the things that were handed over from one proctor to another in the 16th century. And I found the Polax, that was there all right, but I never did work out what this dratted butter measure was. And I'm actually rather pleased because I, I like the idea that this object is handed over solemnly every year and has been for hundreds of years, and no one's got the foggiest idea what it is. <laughs> But we still had a walking roster in those days. I doubt whether they do now. I haven't seen proctors walking for decades. But, of course, not long before us, the proctors had uh, set the night watch, as it were, and would go around every night. But we still had a roster. So every night there was a, a proctor and two constables. Um, not, the proctorial body was six, of course, because there were two proctors in waiting, and then the two had just done it. So you were all on the roster. But we only occasionally went out, and um, so I'd call them up occasionally and we would go walking, just to make sure 
but they weren't um, off on holiday or anything. And also because I thought if we were going to have to deal with situations, incidents, then undergraduates needed to know what we looked like, and we just turn up looking like 18th century clergymen, you know, undertakers with top hats. <laughs> they would just laugh, whereas if you're part of the Cambridge scene, then they accept it. And so we were still visible, and it was quite interesting to see as you walked around the street in the dark that people would scuttle into the shadows in the distance, <laughs> this kind of sense that they might be doing something wrong. But we had no powers, really, except in relation to exams and cheating. In 1982 you went to Harvard. What was the purpose of this visit? Yes, in, in, I'd never had a sabbatical before, and in, in 1982 we thought we'd have a year away, preferably a long way away, and um, the United States seemed like a good, good idea. And so we went for a whole year to America, and I spent the fall semester at Harvard Law School, where... Sam Thorne, one of the great figures in legal history, was still present and was very good to me. And then we went down to the Huntington Library where I was a research fellow from January till August, I think. And that's an opportunity again to look at lots of manuscripts. And the, the reason I got the research fellowship at the Huntington was that they bought a notebook of a judge from Henry VIII's reign, which is one of the only two 16th century autograph um, manuscripts of reports by a judge, so it was extremely important, never been heard of before. I was very excited when it came up at Sotheby's and went down to see it, and they said after a while that they'd lost it, which I thought rather extraordinary, and they said, can you come back this afternoon? And when I came back, they said, well, we, we haven't lost it, but it's been withdrawn from the sale as an ownership dispute. And so I went away feeling rather disappointed. I said, well, if, if, if and when the dispute is resolved, please let me know, because this is really rather significant. The next thing I heard, that it had been put back in the sale by Telex and sold, which I thought was extraordinary and actually very wrong, because there would have been some competition to buy it. And I'm sure Cambridge would have bought it if I'd got them going. Anyway, I then started proceedings to stop its export as a work of importance. And then I found out, as a result of that, that Huntington bought it. Well, a London dealer had bought it for them. And they were very good to me, and they let me look at it while it was with the dealer in London. And then they gave me a research fellowship to go to California to edit it. And that was part of the reason for going to the States. Very interesting. I still don't know where the manuscript came from, or what the dispute was. Everyone's been very cagey about it. It'll be fascinating to know that mm. a manuscript of such importance, written by a judge who died in 1540, never been cited before by anybody. Where was it? Yes. So your 1972 sojourn was a week-long sojourn to do the cataloguing yes. at Harvard. Yes. It was terribly hot. I remember about it. But, um, it was very generous of them to fly me over, but they couldn't afford a decent hotel, so I stayed in a hotel without air conditioning in extreme heat wave. And so... I either opened the windows at night uh, and couldn't sleep for traffic noise, or I closed them and suffocated. 
And I remember having worked very hard on manuscripts all day. I would go to the public library where it was air-conditioned and stay until I was thrown out at about 11. And I'd go and have an ice cream or something somewhere <laughs> and then go back to this awful hot room. And being young, I was able to keep that up for a week, but it was pretty awful. <clears throat> this would have been while you were the squire librarian. Yes. Yeah. It was one of my sort of bibliographical projects. My other bibliographical project then was that uh, Oceana Books decided they were going to do a reprint of the yearbooks. And they asked me to produce the apparatus for that. So they wanted an introduction to each volume, which I wrote. And they wanted an introduction to the whole thing, much of which I wrote, history of the yearbooks and a guide to law French. And then they decided they weren't going to do it. And they did offer to publish what I'd done on microfilm, and I didn't like that idea very much, so that fell through. And I, I've subsequently published most of those things in other forms. But um, what I spent most of my time doing was going around libraries all over the country, and indeed in the States, looking at early yearbooks and, and uh, making an inventory. And that was wasted time because the second edition of the short title catalogue did, did the thing much better and they found printings I didn't even know about. So I'd gone into more detail than I had and, and gave distinguishing features of the different books and so forth, but it wasn't really publishable and uh, I just let that go. And I spent a lot of my time as... I thought that's the kind of thing a law librarian ought to do. <laughs> so, yeah. Interesting. Um, in 1983, you were a Millen Senior Research Fellow at San Marino College. Uh, well, no, that is the Huntington Library. There's no such thing. Um, that's what I was referring to. That's what you're referring to. Yes. Thank you. Um, over your 10 years as a lecturer, you had four books to your credit, as well as 28 articles and eight book chapters, so a very productive period. And I wondered, Professor Baker, whether you could sort of summarise these important years. No, I, I was going to make a note on I couldn't think of anything to say about that. <laughs> Which, uh, I, I suppose... Much of my work then and since has been driven by looking at manuscripts, yeah. which I've always been fascinated by, and thank goodness for my early training at school. So whenever I see legal manuscripts, I want to look at them and find out what they are. Yes. In the case of the British Library, which is a national disgrace, there aren't proper catalogues, so the Harleian collection hasn't been listed since the 18th century, and many of the items are just listed as old law manuscripts. And so you can find things like Cook's Notebooks, as I did there. And that encouraged me to look at all legal manuscripts I could lay my hands on in case there would be something interesting. There was never anything quite as exciting as Cook's Notebooks, but certainly every time you look at a legal manuscript, it makes you think about something you haven't thought about before. And so I did quite a lot of editing, because you learn a lot in the course of editing, and I think it produces a useful product, even if people don't use it very much. So a lot of those titles were editions. They certainly weren't monographs, which I've not written very many of. I think you've written 38 books. Really? I think so. <laughs> yes. Well, I haven't, 
I'm I sorry, I haven't written them. I mean, some of them are edi editions. Although editing is often misunderstood by those who haven't done it, at least editing kind of things that I've edited. It isn't just a matter of copying them out and translating them. It's usually involved a lot of detective work in working out what the text is to begin with from various fragments, fitting them together, yes. and then putting them in context. And then if they're law reports, you try to find the corresponding records in the public record office which is a bit like looking for a needle in a haystack. So that, that actually takes more time than transcribing the French does. And um, it, almost everything I've edited, and I thought this is the hardest thing I've ever done. It's been terribly difficult. But then the next one comes along, and that's even harder. So it isn't uh, an easy task. And it also means that you have to think about all the cases and what they're about. That can spark off other lines of research. Incredible detail, Professor Baker, that you seem able to sort of look at and then see the overall picture, um, forming a, a rich, very rich tapestry, which is one of your many gifts. But uh, we'll come to that when we approach your scholarly work. And um, this might be a good point at which to stop and all that remains is for me to thank you most sincerely for a fascinating account and I'm so looking forward to the next conversation. Um, oh, thank, thank you very you much. Very, mm. very much. Thank mm. you.